Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for welcoming us and doing the housekeeping Corentima. I'm Rena Lewis. I'm Professor of Cultural Studies at London College of Fashion, UAL. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome you here tonight to Faith and Fashion on behalf of LCF Global in partnership with Creative Church at St. Mary's Walthamstow. To assist any audience members who may be blind or visually impaired, the panel are going to give a short description of their appearance when they first speak. So I should say that I look like a middle-aged white woman wearing glasses with brown hair in a short bob, and I'm wearing gray trousers and a pink jacket. And I have to say that working at how to describe my outfit at a fashion event in such brief terms was a very interesting discipline. Um, we can talk in detail later. Tonight, we meet in the context of a wonderful exhibition curated by Amina Hashmi and Karantama Animadu. It's called Material Witness, an exhibition on fashion, textiles, and everyday activism in Walsham Forest. The exhibition uses fashion and textiles to explore identity, community, sustainability, and spirituality. It was curated in collaboration with a steering group from the local community as part of, as I understand it, the church's desire to build connections beyond its own religious denomination. And some of the steering group and the exhibitors are here, and we look forward to hearing from you in the discussion later, I hope. The exhibition's focus on everyday fashion activism provides a rich ground for tonight's discussion about how diverse religious, secular, spiritual, and philosophical moral perspectives are articulated through fashion and style. I'm hoping that Amina and Corentima will also chime into the discussion to share insights about making the exhibition. But first, join me please as I introduce our three wonderful speakers, Christine Chachinska, Himira Dar, and Elisa Ruzaniva. We are so honored to have you with us. Welcome them, please. As usual at Faith and Fashion events, we're recording for our podcast. So in a moment, I'll start with a brief scene setting before introducing our speakers in more detail and their work. And after that, the panelists have generously agreed each to say a few words. And then I have some conversation points for the four of us. And then last but very much not least, we invite questions and contributions from our audience. The exhibition, Material Witness, which is through there and around us in the church, is beautiful and fascinating. Gathering fashion stories from people of Walsham Forest, it challenges conventional definitions of activism by showing, it says, the more quiet and hidden acts that bring people together and express who we are. Now, for our viewers outside London in the UK and abroad, I should explain that St Mary's is a 12th century church, now Anglican Church of England, in the East, in the, in the East London neighbourhood of Walthamstow, and this sits within the municipal London borough of Waltham Forest, which is where the exhibition locates itself. Waltham Forest is a diverse community made up of individuals from multiple faiths, many ethnicities, and different cultural backgrounds. Waltham Forest is currently home to the fifth largest Muslim population in England and the third largest in London. The exhibition is itself a form of activism. It expands definitions of activism away from spectacular heroics into everyday actions 
and, and this is also what I really love, it foregrounds the creativity of people who might not be fashion professionals or see themselves as creatives. This democratizing impulse provides a marvelous staging post for our conversation about the personal and political implications of everyday fashion acts in relation to belief in the broadest sense. It helps us see the diversity of belief and moral perspective and the way that this comes through dress and appearance. Now, regular faith and fashion attendees and viewers will immediately see why I leapt upon the chance to join this discussion. For 10 years now, under the banner of faith and fashion, it's been my very great pleasure to convene public conversations in the UK and around the world about the intersection of religious cultures and fashion cultures. Tonight brings out the breadth and creativity of both those terms, religious cultures and fashion cultures. Now, I favor the category religious cultures rather than simply saying religions, because I want to draw attention to the myriad ways in which people experience and express belief and spirituality in their daily lives. And to do this, I make use of the inclusive definition framed by the UK 2010 Equality Act. To protect the expression of religion and belief, the Act opens up the category to include philosophical belief and non-belief, and to anticipate new beliefs seeking protection such as, for example, was the case with ethical veganism, which gained protection in 2020. This expansive concept of belief and religion can also help foreground recognition of spiritual, indigenous, and non-religious moral perspectives and worldviews that do not fit definitions of institutional religion. The exhibition's focus on everyday fashion activism also melds perfectly with my favorite approaches from sociology of religion that look at everyday religion. These approaches see religion as something lived through embodied practices rather than only through subscribing to doctrines or in attending places of worship. And scholarship by Maguire and Ammerman has been foundational here. If we put religion and fashion into dynamic together, we can think about how beliefs of all sorts are expressed through our dressed appearance, and we can foreground the active role of the fashion industries in providing the means, the garments or the accessories, for example, through which those beliefs are articulated. This is why I also prefer to talk about fashion cultures, plural, rather than simply fashion. I want to highlight the plurality of garment types and fashions through which people style and express belief, religious and non-religious. And I want to signal that there is an array of fashion industries and media. This fits with what we now often refer to as decolonizing fashion, decentering the mainstream or Western fashion industry by emphasizing the interconnectivity of transnational production and consumption and by focusing on diverse national fashion industries and diaspora fashion industries around the world. In my own work, I've studied religion and belief-based fashion and media, notably the cross-faith modest fashion market, and I've looked at how diaspora fashion industries fuse so-called traditional or ethnic garments with global trends, in particular way, the way that the well-developed UK South Asian diaspora fashion industry 
finds design propositions to bring people from mixed religious backgrounds and also the different religious South Asian communities together, for example, for life-based events like weddings. So a way that fashion helps communities engage with each other um, with thoughtful use of so-called traditional or ethnic garments in line with global trends. Tonight's topic gives us an opportunity to look deeply into how dress and appearance play a role in the expression of belief. We can explore the use of fashion as a vehicle for different sorts of activism and think about the role of the gallery or the museum to show how belief coexists with fashion for designers and consumers. To help us think through, we have a wonderful panel who between them cover a vast range of experience in design, education, curation, and public engagement. So in alphabetical order, I'm going to introduce them in a little more detail before they make their opening remarks. Dr. Christine Chichinska is the V&A's inaugural senior curator of African and Africa diaspora fashion at the V&A. Christine was lead curator of the Africa Fashion Exhibition, which ran at the V&A from July 2022 to April this year, and I'm sure many of you have seen this agenda-setting show. Before joining the V&A, Christine worked as an academic, artist, curator, and women's wear designer. Her creative practice and research explore the relationship between fashion, culture, and race. She's worked on curated exhibitions that include Maker's Eye, Stories of Craft at the Crafts Council Gallery in 2012, and Folded Life at the Johann Jacobs Museum in Zurich in 2021. Among Christine's many publications, we note especially her chapter, Refashioning Africa, African Diasporic Masculinities in Fashion and Postcolonial Critique, edited by Elko Jorgelet, is that how you say it? Yes. and Monica Titan in 2019, and of course the absolutely unmissable book that accompanied the V&A exhibition, Africa Fashion. The importance of fashion and embodiment in the expression of individual and community identities has been explored by Christine in a number of presentations, including your very popular TEDx talk from 2016, which perfectly for tonight was titled Disobedient Dress, Fashion as Everyday Activism all the buzzwords that we need. Our second speaker next to Christine is Humira Dar, whose graduate menswear collection at the University of East London drew on her Kashmiri heritage to create fashion supporting human rights, especially for the young people of Kashmir who died in protests. Humira grew up in Malden Forest after her parents migrated here from Pakistan in the 1960s. As a local, Humira was immersed in a rich East London fashionscape a dress code, she says, that moves seamlessly between casual, sporty, and high fashion. And I have to say that as a local girl who grew up down the road in Ilford, this description totally resonated for me. <laughs> to build her new streetwear brand, Humira prioritizes sustainable production. She uses old denim garments and dead stock. And dead stock, for anyone who's not clear on that, is unsold inventory, so that could be garments or fabrics, that are surplus to supply. And so they're often popular with designers or brands and home sewers who are trying to reduce fashion waste. And I'm interested to hear more when we speak, Humira, about how the integration of sustainable methods combines with your creative design decisions. When we think about everyday fashion activism, it's really helpful to have examples of how creatives and designers are able to incorporate socially responsible production processes 
into the commodity circuit and the challenges and opportunities that this may bring. And our final speaker opposite me is Elisa Ruzovina, an artist, designer and educator whose interdisciplinary socially engaged practice and community work is informed by vegan philosophy and animist beliefs. Elisa graduated in fashion design with print BA and then material futures at MA at Central St. Martin's UAL. And Elisa is now an associate lecturer at UAL. And although this means that we are colleagues, today's the first time we've actually ever met because the university is so big and spread out. So I'm very grateful that this brought us together. It might be years before our paths cross again, but I hope not. Elisa sees all her work as essentially activist. Across her individual design work and collaborative public engagement lies a commitment to explore alternative forms of knowledge. She opens, she says, possibilities for sustainable, place-based ways of relating, making and being that bring us closer in communion with the earth and with each other. Elisa's studio is on the Leighton Walthamstow borders and she has a powerful track record of community co-design and public artworks. For the Material Witness exhibition, Elisa was commissioned to support six students from the local Manu College to create activist banners using locally sourced offcuts and textile scraps to explore social justice issues that matter to them as a group. And if you haven't seen the exhibition already, there'll be a chance afterwards to take a look at this wonderful work. Elisa's other funders and clients include the Barbican, Victorian Albert Museum, the British Council, the Craft Council, the Mayor of London's Commission for Diversity in the Public Realm, Climate Emergency Network, London Fashion Week, and Fashion Revolution, to name just a few. It is an honour to be in your company. Welcome them once more, please. And now we're handing over to Christine, who's going to share with us some opening remarks. Thank you so much. So, hello everyone. I'm Christine Jakinska. I am an African-Caribbean heritage woman of a certain age, I shall say. So don't be surprised if you see me glowing. That says something about the age that I'm now in. I have long locks that are worn in a ponytail. I'm wearing a black shift dress, which is collarless. And I've got my favorite shoes on today, black and white Birkenstocks. Other brands are available. <laughs> so with my, uh, thank you so much, Rina and the others. So with my opening thoughts, I really wanted to perhaps share some of the things that underpin um, all of my work, I realise. It's always wonderful to be invited to speak at these kinds of uh, panels because you start to relook at your work in a different way. Um, and then I hope that we can sort of weave some thoughts around Africa fashion specifically into the later discussions. But initially, I just wanted to share some thoughts. My spirituality and my creativity are closely interwoven. Creativity is an essential component of my life, as essential as eating, drinking, breathing, contemplation and prayer. For me, creativity is an impulse, a drive. There's always a desire to birth something new. And that could be a concept, an object, a body of work, or an exhibition like Africa Fashion. Much of my work around fashion, race, and culture is informed by the lack of separation between the spiritual and the secular that exists across global Africa, and how this fact shapes our self-fashioning 
which of course is as diverse, varied and nuanced as we are as people. So I want to share maybe three ideas, quick ideas about faith and fashion, or perhaps more accurately for me, about the business of spirituality and creativity through the lens of fashion. So my first thought, we're all creative and are meant to live our lives creating. Life itself is an act of creativity, but for sure some of people do have a particular spark that flows into every part of their life, and I think maybe on the panel that's true. But if life itself is an act of artistic expression, making a life is an act of, of creativity. So therefore, what is the function of fashioning the self? Zora Neale Hurston, the Harlem Renaissance writer and activist, wrote of a will to adorn common across global Africa. And I think this is deeply tied to what it is to be human. Just as spirituality, in my view, is tied to what it is to be human. Spirituality in its many forms. Whether we follow a particular religion or spirituality or not, spirituality and creativity are part of our common humanity. The second thought I want to share, all creativity is prayer. I think we each possess a creative spark deep within that's tied to this idea of spirituality, a creative spark that might ignite the way that we present ourselves in everyday life. Fashion's part of the process by which the unequal distribution of power within society is constructed, maintained, and experienced as legitimate. But joy of joys, Fashion can also be used to challenge and to contest one's position within that society. And for me, therein lies fashion's potential to heal. My last point. If, as Stuart Hall wrote, Stuart Hall, the cultural theorist that's underpinned much of my thinking, if, as Stuart Hall wrote, identity is, is as much a process of becoming as it is an act of being, could the body itself be considered as a space of becoming? This is something that I touched on in the TED talk, I think. And what would it be like to engage that creative spark within and the spirit within simultaneously, allowing that power to shape the way that we fashion ourselves? What would it be like to fashion ourselves mindfully, I'm going to say, and I think we might touch on that a little later. Could the act of getting dressed become an act of contemplation? Could the time spent be seen as a deliberate act of self-care, almost a liberatory act? What would it be like to have the courage to bring, to bring out who we know we are inside, even if that's at odds with who society at large says that we are? What would it be like to truly reflect who we know we are on the inside through the way we fashion ourselves? And I want to finish my um, little moment with um, one last thought, possibly because I've been reading about the wonderful British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, which has just opened. But I was reminded of James Baldwin, which they use for their inspiration. But James Baldwin, the author, famously wrote, and I quote, there is a reason why, sorry, there's a reason after all why some people wish to colonize the moon and others dance before it as an ancient friend, unquote. 
So could fashioning the self, engaging the spirit as a deliberate liberatory act, be a kind of dancing before the moon? And if so, surely this is a glimpse of what it is to live in the spirit. Thank, Thank you. you. That was so beautifully put and so thoughtful. Thank you. And much for us to pick on afterwards. We're going to hand over now to Hamira, and we've got some images to go with your. Yes. So let's just wait for the first image to come up. Okay. And you can okay. see it over Hi, there. Hi, yeah. Uh, so my name is Hamira Dar, um, graduated only recently, 2017. Um, I did do women's wear. Oh, sorry, I didn't describe myself, did I? Sorry, apologise. So how I describe myself, very short hair, South Asian, tanned, because I've just come from back from Milan. No, not Milan, it's Naples. And... Um, I basically am wearing a denim jacket which I uh, dead stocked the denim and made a nice jacket and I'm wearing denim jeans and some uh, Doc Martin boots. Nice and green socks, sorry if you can see those, they're flashing there. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I basically did women's wear. Um, I actually, uh, I'm overwhelmed with uh, wonderful people around me um, who've obviously bought their notes, which I didn't bring my notes, but I will speak how I feel. And I think when I was doing fashion, I was actually trying to find myself. Um, first of all, fashion was all about, I wanted to know how an idea, an object, uh, could be crafted into a cat, onto the catwalk. So once I got into the degree, I also then wanted to find myself, what do I like? And I think I journeyed back to my street culture, um, hanging around Dalston, Hackney with my friends, uh, Afro-Caribbean friends who loved tailored Italian, very funky, kind of jazzy, relaxable uh, items which were very sporty as well. I kind of embodied that and became very tomboyish within that environment. And I think I harped back into that environment and I slowly, slowly seeped into it. And then I finally, my third year of my degree, I decided to do menswear because my ideas of clothes became very boxy. I didn't like, um, I didn't like the fact that it was um, having to sculpture everything to the body. I wanted everything loose. Um, and I found the fun in my clothes, but also I wanted to study my heritage. So being Kashmiri, I went on, as we all know, Instagram. <laughs> We all look on there, I was getting my inspiration and suddenly my inspiration turned into a bit of a uh, factual information which was a bit horrific, so hence my, my passion became how can I support the Kashmiris in their plea for freedom. So I said, well, I'm going to make clothes so, and I'm going to research what these young guys are wearing on the street and to be honest they actually looked like they were from East London literally 
I, I couldn't believe what they were wearing. It's like, okay, this is crazy. All right, so they're wearing jeans, they're wearing denim, they're wearing all these funky clothes and protesting. So that journey went into that where I actually decided, um, I did put an element, it was called hashtag, because we all use hashtags in Instagram and it became hashtag 61Y. And then that, I actually did become very depressed in my collection. <laughs> the depression was because 61 meant the amount of youth that had passed away in protest. So that was my tag. And uh, I just basically think that a lot of people came to me and resonated with the idea of freedom. And it, it can be anyone's freedom. We can be talking about in the 60s how we all want to be free and be respected and given our rights. So a lot of people kind of homed into that idea and that can kind of casual free will in the garments tell a story as well. My parents coming from East, uh, coming in the 60s and how my dad struggled working in Ford Dagenham. He'd come home he, and one of the inspirations was his tote bag and I can still remember today, and I still got it today, is the tote bag that he asked someone in the factory, you know, can you sew this? And he'd use it every day, and I'd see it hanging. So it's kind of very East London, hardworking, but trying to make your life, but also be respected freely. So, yeah, so that's... I'm you. Go, yeah. Yeah, so um, now I think every life is a journey, even in fashion. Fashion changes like everything. And I kind of like educated myself, learning a bit more, going to exhibitions and at the V&A. <laughs> and I learned about the culture of how we're frying away things and how denim was literally part of it. I mean, I, I can't stop thinking about the image of a pile of denim jeans in a warehouse, sky high, and the waste. And I thought, I can't, I did environmental studies. I'm the type of person who waits for a bin to put my rubbish in. And I can't think about frying. And I was learning so much about how in Africa, all the waste is going there and it's being dumped and how it's ruining the environment. How can we reculture this back? So this is where I started using Levi jeans uh, to make them into new products and using dead stock as possible. Uh, that's what I'd like to say. I was interrupting to say, I don't know if you said that the bag of your dad's was made from the textiles yes. that were used inside yeah. the cars. For the cars, the interiors of the cars. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful blue and uh, reminds me of denim again. So, so something's harping about that. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Hamira. And now we pass over to you, Elisa, and we could go back. That's it. Thank you. We're all yours. Um, right. Need to order. Oh, is it on? Is it working? Maybe not, but I can grab another mic, right? Let's yeah. put that one down. There you go. Is it? This one is working. Ah! You just have to eat it, I think. <laughs> oh, I do have to eat it. Just I thought it. we could avoid that for the dinner. Oh, now it's working. Great. Yes, I can hear myself really well. So let me maybe start with an audio description. Um, I'm a blonde, late 20s, East Slavic woman dressed in really colourful clothes. Blues, greens, reds are all present. And yellow shoes. 
Um, and I thought instead of going deeper into my work, uh, to offer you an embodied experience if you come along with me on a little journey. Feel free to participate, I'd love it if you could, but also you can absolutely just listen to it. Um, I'd invite you to close your eyes if you feel comfortable with that. If that's not comfortable for you, you can just look at the floor and have a soft gaze. So I'll give you a moment to do that. And this will be a journey really acknowledging the invisible ecological relationships that support us in our everyday. I feel we forget as humans about that really often. So let's center in your body right here. Try to really sink into the phenomenal, beautiful and fascinating body of yours. This is your first ecological home. This creation of evolution took hundreds of thousands of years to evolve so that you could function well. How is your first home feeling? See if you could give your body a bit more love and recognition. Your body is your access point to this life experience. It is your ecological sensorium panel with which you can connect to the phenomenal diversity of other ecological beings present on this earth. And actually, if we're speaking of other beings, have you ever given it much thought that for most of your waking hours, you're actually wrapped up in a loving embrace of numerous kindred beings? Maybe your skin is currently touching a shirt that's made out of cotton. The cotton that has been woven into fabric by caring human hands on another side of the world. Before that though, this cotton thread was a plant that grew in a field, absorbing sunshine, rain, with worms and bacteria beneath it, working hard on decomposing matter to make the most nurturing soil. Tending, hard walking, Human hands have been part of this process too, harvesting the plant and with the help of intricately built machinery weaving the plant into thread. Can you feel all of this life potency in your cotton shirt? Or maybe you're wearing a sweater made out of rich wool of a sheep, sheep that was once grazing and frolicking in relationship to its flock with lamb offspring. The wool from this sheep has been sheared at the end of a winter. That wool was then washed to strip it off of all the natural oils and pulled through machinery to make it soft and fluffy before being spun, dyed and knitted by caring hands. It's also quite likely that the shoes you're wearing are made up of the skin of an animal. Once walking, breathing, circulating, digesting in relationship to other beings, part of an ecosystem themselves. Can you try to remember to thank that life in your steps? And possibly you are wearing jewelry made out of precious metals 
Scientists have recently discovered that gold is created due to nuclear energy generated when stars explode. Around 4 billion years ago, when the Earth was fairly young, our planet was bombarded by asteroids. And this is how these freshly exploded bits of stars found their way into the crust of the Earth. That potency of faraway stars is now contained within your chains, watches and rings. Many thousand years after the mentioned asteroids settled into the Earth layers, a series of volcanic eruptions, earthquakes and erosions caused the gold in your rings to rise to the surface. This precious juice of stars was then harvested and liquefied at a thousand degrees it was molded, cooled and carefully polished by many people's efforts just so that you here now could shine with a sparkle coming from the heart of the stars. And those glasses and buttons you might be wearing that are made out of plastic, which is made up of ancient remains of animals and plants that have lived millions of years ago even before the dinosaurs set a foot on this planet. Let's acknowledge the ancient lives in your everyday objects. What wisdom might they have to share with you? Remember to whisper sweet words of thank you from time to time to the bamboo that constitutes your underwear or linen shoots that went into your bag. You are in companionship with them. Honour their life transformation that happened so that you could be embraced by warmth and comfort. Say hello to all these more than human beings we're sharing this moment with. We are always surrounded by them. Say thank you for their company, for the sacrifice of their more than human life and time and labour of numerous human hands so that your body could be in nourishment and comfort. Have you noticed that even though we have been journeying for quite a while now, we haven't even stepped outside this church where nature supposedly is located? Nature is everywhere, not only in parks and forests. The foundations of our human civilization are built on these delicate lives of other more than human beings. Let's try to remember as often as possible to be in gratitude for their gift and find our own unique ways to regenerate and replenish what we're taking. Remember, there is never a moment when you are alone. We're not separate from all these earthly beings. Let's invite all of them into our exploration today. And now, whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes. Thank you. I especially love that you talked about glasses. 
because as someone who's worn glasses since she was 10 years old, so often when it comes to issues to do with style, they're just not included in the way, except for people trying to sell spectacles, they're not included in the way that we think about it. And those of us that wear them are thinking, hmm, how's that gonna work with the glasses? So thank you so much for the full um, incorporation of everything that we might be covering. We're gonna take a, a set of questions and discussion points here, and then we're gonna open up for your thoughts and contributions. And I'm gonna start with Christine. We're gathered here in the context of a fashion exhibition. And I'm gonna start for a quest with a question for you about curation. The Africa Fashion Exhibition was stunning, and I can imagine you, pay, you faced enormous demands to try and do everything, because it was the first major exhibition on the topic in the UK. I was intrigued in the exhibition and in the book by a thread that wasn't always overt, but that ran through to do with spirit and spirituality. And I'd like you to say a little bit more about that sort of on the continent of Africa and its diasporas, so global Africa, as you're calling it, to what extent, in what ways, did spirituality and the intersection of particular relationships of society and religion and belief factor in? And also, in terms of sort of what we might call the politics of knowledge exchange, you're presenting that exhibition for a very varied audience as also in the book. What did you presume that people knew or that you had to explain? And how did you come to those decisions? Mm. Thank you, that's a fantastic um, question, set of questions actually, Rena. Um, I'm gonna maybe start with your last question, which is about um, our approach to the curation of the show and who are we speaking to with the show? And almost from whose perspectives were we curating? And by curating, I mean presenting the ensembles, the films, the photographs, but also the way, you know, the gallery text, all those little elements, the sound, the visuals, and the design of the show. From the beginning, we knew that this exhibition, Africa Fashion, needed to be about agency, needed to be about abundance rather than lack, needed to be, and I always describe it as a conscious celebration of African creativity, but through the lens of fashion. And to be frank, it was written from the perspective of multiple and varied African voices. So we didn't really want to think too much about the white gaze, as we might call it in you know, academic circles. It was very much about wanting people of African heritage primarily, even though we knew it would appeal to everyone, people of African heritage primarily to feel at home. You know, and often when I speak to people, I kind of say, depending on the audience, this exhibition is about us being us when no one's looking. And I, this idea of conscious celebration, very much drawing on um, that legacy of conscious music. I'm looking around our audience here and I, I can see someone smiling that remembers conscious music back in the 70s. So conscious music was typically often homegrown, there's some lovely smiles there, homegrown um, reggae music, essentially, black British reggae music often, that emerged in the 70s, in that moment of conflict, in that moment of invisibility and erasure, but also the moment where we needed to act to protect ourselves, to stand our ground in the society here in Britain. So conscious music came up, it emerged as a music form that reminded us of who we were 
And I think that's really tied to what my view on fashion is. It's a tool with which we can remind ourselves of who we are. So it's there to nourish, to inform, to build up. So those were the things that we considered in beginning to work on Africa fashion. We knew that all we could hope for, or what we hoped for, was to give people a glimpse of the glamour and the politics, because it's such a diverse um, scene there. You know, each country with myriad cultural forms, with numerous designers, all drawing on many different things to create their collections. But that idea of we're showing a glimpse of glamour and politics was the thing that held everything together. And I think for me, coming back to these, this idea of spirituality or fashion faith and how does that inform practice and how did that inform Africa fashion and the content? In terms of the content, we really wanted to almost pass the mic to the creatives in the show. So there was this common thread that was around spirituality and it's everything from Chris Seydoux's use of Bogolan Finney cloth, but simplifying the design of Bogolan Finney, it's a, it's a mud cloth with spiritual references, but to honor the spirituality found in that culture through this cloth. Chris Seydoux, which was a, he was a 20th century designer from Mali, he simplified the designs to be respectful to those particular, particular spiritualities. So he was one of our mid 20th century designers, but equally we had photographic work by the contemporary photographer Gouled Ahmed, who through their work throws a light on the invisibility of non-binary Muslim identities in fashion. And so people's spirituality was out there because they wanted to speak about their spirituality. But I think what I tried to do as the person leading the project was to bring my integrated self to that project. So for me, as I've mentioned before, spirituality and creativity go hand in hand and it, they both inform everything I do, often in a really subtle way. But in the design of the exhibition, those of you that saw it, particularly on the mezzanine, the, the exhibition was split across two floors. The space on the mezzanine, that gallery is circular. We worked with a wonderful design um, team, an architect's practice called Westport. And we spoke to them about our collaborative approach, about this sense of unity in spite of difference, about this sense of collective power. And so the design of the mezzanine was such that audiences had to walk the circle and experience that sense of collective power. In the dome above the gallery, we projected wonderful images, large-scale images of um, a mixture of models and friends and dancers, everyday people, all dressed in their finery, dressed in the work of the designers in the exhibition. And so, for me, the real joy and the thing that I really treasure about taking people around the show, particularly people that came from the continent, from the African continent to visit the show. Many people experienced a spiritual presence in the exhibition. And that was yes to do with the content, so reading the text, seeing work like Gouled's, seeing work like the Chris Do. But I think walking that circle, that um, the symbolic nature of the dome in terms of African cosmologies and philosophies and spiritualities, the importance of the dome was something that people picked up. The circularity, the way that, um, you know, time, the, the historical nature of the show was such that you circled back 
to the present. You started in the present, you went back in time, you came to the contemporary floor, and then you had to, be, you had to end, you had to leave as you'd begun. And so for many people, that referenced the idea of Sankofa, for example, and other spiritual beliefs on the continent. So spirituality was there, and I think it came from the creatives in the show, but also my desire to bring my integrated self, the creativity and the spirituality together in the leading of the project. Thank you. That's a wonderful insight. And I always say when I talk to curators, about all different sorts of exhibitions that often when, when we as a punter go around the exhibition, we think, oh, it was always thus. This is, this is exactly how it was meant to be. And it was all very straightforward. And so having a sense of the decisions that go into making it, and also, you know, we're not going to talk about particular challenges and items that got stuck in customs and that sort of thing, which we also know happened. But that sense of the work and the, the conceptualization that goes into what we then experience, it's such a privilege to hear that. And it adds levels of meaning to it. Thank you. And now I want to talk, Humira, if I may, about your making, because so many of our students are committed to socially and environmentally responsible fashion ethics, as also are many consumers who want to reduce the impact of what they wear and what they buy. So can you say a little bit more, you've introduced it already, about how sustainability informs your business practice, both in terms of production and design aesthetics, and could you say a little bit more about how you use dead stock? So do the decision about, how does the decision about materials interact with your aesthetic decisions? Is it that you have a design idea and you go out looking for the materials with which to make it, or do you look at the materials and that feeds into your design vision or something else? Oh, funny enough, it's both. Oh. Uh, when you go out, you suddenly see inspiration, well, Let's say there's a whole, it's a circular. As you go around, you think about yourself and what you like, what catches your eye. Um, I mean, I remember I used, going back to my tomhood, uh, tomboy um, kind of ethics of clothing, wearing hoodies, sweat tops, and you have those everywhere. And then you've got the t-shirts, and then you've got the jeans. And I was like, you know, Bringing it together, I went to an actual, now there's lots of lots of places where people are basically swapping garments or lending their garments or basically re-loving their clothing. So it's a circular motion which people are doing, which is really interesting. And I thought, well, why don't I try and implement that in my design? So I'm trying to, kind of reinvent what's already there but make it different it's like for example I can only describe a t-shirt there's loads of t-shirts and I see t-shirts like layers of different aspects of it which I could split and put together again and it can express something um, for example if you talk about refugees and you talk about their freedom as well, they want a life. And the T-shirts that I was expressing and I'm collaborating with someone on regards of that freedom for their, uh, to exist was their T-shirts. Everyone wears a T-shirt and it has got a story behind it. So I think it's reinventing everything but using already. You've got the wheel, 
everyone's got, you know, a car's got a wheel, you reinvent it, you can design it, you can make it different. And it can have a different message, carry a different message. And that's how I kind of see it. I'm evolving as well. You keep changing, you keep on going to the environment. And, and I'm very conscious of the fact that I can't waste anything. I mean, I wish to some point I can manufacture there's a machine out there that I could put all my fabrics in and it comes out something else. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be a different fabric. I haven't wasted anything. But in my form, I'm trying to just do my best and sculpture something different. That's what I'm doing. Thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Elisa, could you share a little about the role of spirituality and belief in your creative practice? I'd love to know the extent to which and how your approach to the environment informs your choice of materials, and if this is apparent in your aesthetic overall. Um, and I know that you live and work near the River Lee marshlands and that this is a source of inspiration. And I just wondered, if you have time to fit this in, whether your aesthetic would be different if you lived and worked somewhere else. Because if you're responding to what's around you, how much does that then determine? It's a bit like the question about the fabrics. How, what is the engagement of that then with the type of work you do? So the way in which spirituality and the landscape, the environment impacts in your work. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful questions. And it's just so nice to hear you speak. I, I can really resonate with both of your responses. Um, I think for me, kind of a core strand in my work is place-based practice. And by that, I mean both a, a natural ecology and a social ecology, which is involved. So I really look at the landscape I'm in and the communities I'm in. And I find that's my way of finding my place of belonging and also creating spaces and conversations that create belonging for others. So I'm actually a solo immigrant, first generation immigrant to the UK. Um, so I definitely have my own personal agenda here as a creative. I'm also trying to find my place and I find that place through conversations. And maybe you got that sense from uh, the visualization that we did don't only commune with humans, I'm really interested in the more than human world and the conversations that can happen there. So speaking to materials as subjects and creating work that ha as a subject, not as an object. And I feel like we live in, um, in a world, uh, a contemporary crisis I find capitalist has created and our industrial paradigm has created is that we live in a world of dead matter. And I refuse, refuse to follow that. We live in a world that is filled with aliveness and, you know, we think of humans as alive, but actually, what about this table? That was a tree. What about the clothing that we wear? And what's interesting is that, you know, when we are in community as people, a different energy arises, a different conversation arises, and a new story arises. For example, if you look to your is it right? Left? Left? To your left? I see those banners over there. This is um, a project that I did together with um, six different communities in Waltham Forest, um, all addressing the stories and narrative of the local Walthamstow High Street, which is a very famous local street, uh, which is the longest market street in Europe, a fun fact. Mm. Um, and first we sourced conversations from the traders 
but also each group, of course, brought their own narrative, their own understanding, and it's very intergenerational, people with different abilities and interests. And for me, this is about weaving new stories, what a new urban folklore might look like, what a new uh, common understanding of a place might look like, what is important to such a big variety and diversity of people, how can we crystallize it into symbols how can we find mutual understandings that transpire into visual language? Um, and for example, speaking of materiality, I normally work either with naturally based materials or waste, but considering that this particular project was really linked to the high street, it only felt possible for me to source materials from the local shops because that street is famous for its fabric shops. That was actually probably the first time I, I actually went into a fabric shop in like seven years because I personally, as a practitioner in my own practice, refused to buy new fabric. Um, and, but this, it felt really, it has to be done uh, because that feeds into the narrative. So that really links me up to the importance of context. Um, and so even though my work, well, my work is community and place-based, and it's dependent on context. So for example, with this project, there was new materials. But recently I've completed a project um, in Poplar, working with an amazing array of creatives, um, distilling um, a natural color palette of the area, which we created through natural dye workshops and co-developed it with local community. So that was all about the foraged plants that you can find. And also thinking about circularity. Um, very much thinking about what is the waste that we can die with, um, that we can source from people's kitchen in the area, or off licenses. What are the amazing spices that can dye fabric in an interesting way? So there again, it was context specific and project specific. Um, and I think speaking also about the um, participatory aspect um, of my practice and the power of fashion as activism, you know, we all are so connected to clothing. We, we wear it, we have to. Our society makes us wear clothes, so we're they. And I think depending on each community or group, something new can happen. So for example, recently I worked with elders um, creating a community fashion collection. And for them, it was really about their self-image and realizing that they can perceive themselves in the way that they guide the perception so, you know, really fighting the inner ageism that exists in our society. Or, for example, when, when I was working with the students uh, for the banners that are in, uh, in the gallery there, it was really about helping students to find their agency and voice through the voice of textiles. Thank you so much. And thank you for pointing out that we have other pieces of the exhibition here with us as well. I have to keep... I, I have to say, yes, I loved Walthamstow High Road and the market and got loads and loads of vintage fabric and buttons there, but I should stop going down memory lane. Um, I have plenty more that I could ask this talented collection of people, but we're going to open now for questions and contributions, please. Um, we've got a microphone running around at Olympic speed. I think Amina's coming to collect it. Um, if you could wait for the microphone, please, and if you'd be kind enough to say who you are or what you do that brings your interest to this, that would be great. You don't have to, but it's always nice to be able to situate people. Um, do you want the microphone, Amina? Yeah, we'll give you this. Oh, okay, you got that one. Perfect. Um, Francesco to start, I think. Oh, have we got anybody else? Sorry. 
Francesco will let you start us off, and then I see somebody at the back. Hi everyone, thanks. Uh, do I have to say who I am? Yes, why not? Okay. Uh, my name is Francesco Mazzarella, and I work at London College of Fashion with Raina, and I also work with uh, Alisa, and I know everyone here. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, I also contributed to the exhibition, so... Uh, but actually, what, uh, first, uh, it's a comment, actually, what I like and what I find very original and meaningful of this exhibition is reframing activism as a form of, every, like, uh, as an everyday life practice. And actually, a more indirect um, or quiet form of activism, as you also. You have to talk a little slower because ah, yes. there's a slight distortion. Ah, yes. So I, I pretty much like the focus of referring activism as a more indirect or quiet form of activism. But my question to each of you, the speakers, is what we possibly it's implicit in your um, opening talk. But what? If you could spell out what is your vision for the future of the fashion system or overall of society of the environment. And my second question is, and what advice would you give to this audience? And I don't know if there are students, residents, curators, researchers, funders, in order to implement this vision to become reality or for them to find their own reality, recreate their own reality of future. So just two tiny questions there. <laughs> What's your vision for the fashion system? We might, we might say, or a component of it with which you're working, and any advice that you might want to share about what you've learned. Um, who wants to go first? Shall I go first? Solve the problem. I'll go first and get it over and done with, I think. <laughs> no, they're great questions. Um, I think for me, um, one of the things that I really took away from Africa Fashion and the people I met through that I'm, I'm not on, on am I? Is that better? Yes. Uh, we're going to have to eat it. Um, for me, I think that sustainability should be ground zero. And sustainability in terms of, yes, the, the, you know, the waste, you know, no waste uh, in terms of the production of the actual garments. But also for me, sustainability begins with people. So it's people, environment, and then the things that we make and consume. But it should be ground zero. Um, I think that we can learn, in, we in the global north can learn an awful lot from the global south. The global south, of course, didn't have the same um, history of fashion overproduction that we have in the global north. And so I think we can learn a lot from many vernacular cultures for whom sustainability is part of everyday life. And it almost comes back to this twinning of um, spirituality, creativity. It comes back to you know, everything that you've expressed as well about you know, being aware of where our garments come from, being aware of where everything around us comes from, and the fact that we are all connected. I think that that's something that we in the Global North need to rediscover. I think we knew it once, but we somehow lost it. So for me, that's the future. It's learning from the Global South. Thank you. And we're going to pass it along, and I'm going to fill up your water. OK, thank you. Um, I think it's definitely... I remember as a student, I used to go into charity shops, and most of my clothes were from charity shops. And... Um, it's that circular fashion again, respecting that. I think that's kind of a new uh, um, education that everyone's kind of like saying, well, we don't like the idea that we're wasting stuff. Let's just give it new life. And that's a lot, it's growing, it's getting bigger. 
and also the culture of altering and mending and fixing is coming up in the forefront as well, uh, which is really important and very empowering as well. And I mean, I've done a few, I did a workshop where people um, were invited if they had any denim jeans or anything that they wanted to repair and introduced us another form of kind of mending, which was sashiko embroidery. Uh, or their own style of embroidery if they wanted to, to incorporate. And I used scraps and showed them that you could use anything. So it's kind of like an education. I think we're going through this educational process. Unfortunately, I think what it is, is to educate everyone, you can't educate everyone, is what they're going to absorb and understand and will take on. And I think it's always one drop that leads on to a massive river and then which that river leads into the ocean. So that kind of growth of understanding is, it will develop that way. And I think uh, another thing is that to destruct, to basically get, like I spoke to a student, someone spoke to me and said, uh, how do I get a pair of jeans that I like and I want to make them again? I said, well, find a pair of jeans, destruct them, take them apart, make them different, make them new, add a new piece into it. That's something different. You've made a new piece. And it's, it's longevity of stuff. And I think it's respecting, you know, clothes that you just don't throw it away. And it's also there. having the skills to do the yeah. darning, to do the mending. Yeah. You know, even if you're not making whole garments, so, I mean, what I'm hearing as well is how something needs to go, because you're right, it's something that many students are interested in, as well as people who are not students, but moving something beyond being a trend to gain critical mass so that it becomes, as you say, the everyday as well that we're doing. I'm going to pass over to Elisa and then we'll take another question. Yeah, well, what you said, absolutely, education is key. So I feel like it's our responsibility as practitioners to actually, to actually share those skills with people. But I think also I'd love to see a less hierarchical fashion system. I'd love to see the reduction of star designers and more community-driven and defined fashion. Uh, because actually we share fashion. I see your outfits, you see mine, it's a collective experience. What would that look like? What are the stories that would be shared? Where would you be going with them? Um, that's what I'd love to see. And also hyper-local production methods. Uh, that feels absolutely essential considering the, the horrors we do on other sides of the world, the rivers that are polluted, the slave labor involved just because we can't see it, it's not happening in our neighborhoods. What would happen if we had slave children making our garments in our backyard? I think people would know, and I think that would be stopped. So that's what I'd love to see. What would it mean for London to create its own clothes, for England to create its own clothes? What are the exchanges that could happen? What are the reductions that need to happen? Um, and as advice, I think there are two uh, pieces of advice I'd give to the audiences to actually nurture your relationship with your clothing. It's such a beautiful medium to communicate to the world and to yourself who you are. There's so much joy that can be brought to people, so many cultural exchanges that can happen. So actually nourishing that relationship is vital, I find. 
um, and I think the streets would be really much more exciting. <laughs> um, and also, I think having a, a relationship uh, with local makers, maybe natural, lo local natural dye gardens. There are loads of activists who are growing their own flax, their own cotton. Um, you know, have their own sheep. Developing relationships with those people. Maybe for now, it's not attainable to you know have all our clothes made by ourselves or our community, but at least tapping into the stories and the narratives that are actually trying to make that world come to life. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Big question to start us off. Um, I think I saw another hand there. Can I just see who else has a question? And then at the front here. Okay, so if we go to the back and then somebody at the front. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. I've never been to one of these before. Um, I'm a local resident. I went to school next door here and used to sing in here. Um, I have two questions. One for Christine regarding the Africa Fashion Exhibition. Um, at the time, my friends and I remarked and were, um, we thought we possibly missed the fact that diversity was covered. We saw nothing about disability. So that's my first question. My second question is to, uh, is it Elisa? Elisa. Right. Uh, Humera, I agree with everything you say. So Elisa, I disagree um, quite strongly with your introduction about caring hands making cotton and caring hands making wool. Um, the majority of the world by stuffing Primark, which is man-made, using up all of the resources of the world in slave labor camps in China, and they don't give them monkeys as to where their fabric comes from. It's only yummy mummies who can afford cotton and Egyptian cotton for their babies. I'm sorry to say, um, I think, yes, it's a wonderful little dream, but it's a dream. And going back to know, it's about education, and it's about recycling and, it, and reusing and redesigning all of that and educating people not to go buying polyester, etc. And I, I really feel strongly about that because we do not live in cotton and wool. Most of us can't afford it. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, so, um, diversity and disability in the exhibition and then also how do we engage with clothing that is made from sweated labour and the exploited conditions, given that that is something that many people also have in their wardrobes or in the world around them? Mm -hmm. Christine. Brilliant. So um, thanks so much for your question around. So the question is, um, where is diversity or full diversity, including disability, in the Africa Fashion Exhibition? The first thing I want to share is that not all disabilities are visible to the naked eye. Also, it depends what you mean around disabilities in an exhibition, because I can tell you there were people on the curatorial team with disabilities, so that would not be visible to, you know, our audiences. So, you know, there was, uh, you know, non-binary identities featured, there were women with curvy bodies featured in the exhibition, there was a woman with albinism featured in the exhibition. So this is a glimpse, 
but I just really want to stress this fact that not all disabilities are visible to the naked eye. And also, does everything have to exist in terms of the content? What about people with disabilities that worked on the exhibition? And that needs to be acknowledged as well, I think. So, you know, I take on board what you're saying, and certainly this is something that we can perhaps think about in a more overt way in future exhibitions, but I think it's also important not to be tick-boxy. So it has to be genuine inclusion, you know, whether that's modest stress, you know, someone like Doreen Mashika, whose collection, there's always an element of modest stress, and that featured in the exhibition. You know, I mentioned Gulad Ahmed with the non-binary um, identities, the, you know, the self-professed drag artists in Nigeria, featured by Stephen Tayo. So for me, I hear what you're saying. We were a diverse team, fully diverse team, that created that exhibition. And I think that we gave a very real glimpse of the work of people on the continent that are making an impact. And so diversity did exist within that. So thank you. Thank you. That. And can I just add in on that one of yes. my observations? Because there's always the what goes on behind the scenes that doesn't show, that informs the decision making. But also one thing that struck me with this exhibition was the, the way that much of it was amplified through your online content mm. and your community consultation that was integral to it, but how different people's stories were part of it. And I was thinking now, when we make exhibitions now, the online content and engagement and social media engagement, I know that's how you got some of your objects as well, is another factor. And I think, I wonder if perhaps going forward as well, that's another way, way in which, another mechanism by which different aspects of diversity and inclusion can be shown and signaled as well. It's something that struck me when I was looking. Elisa, do you want to talk about the non-yummy mummies? Yeah, I thank you so much for, for your comments. I think you're really addressing a really important point. And I'm with you, absolutely I'm with you. Um, I myself can't afford, uh, you know, organic cotton most of the time. And I'm vegan specifically because I totally hear you on the horrible treatment of animals. What I was trying to do with that is to invite us into a vision of connection that we've been stripped from, really during industrial revolution and how our economies function right now. If we were actually living more hyper-localized productions, then this vision would be real. And I find that's what I was trying to bring in. It's not how it is now, but it is the, the severance of that connection is at the root cause of our problems. If we actually felt like, the living, like there was living bodies holding that wall, if you know the minerals were dug by human hands, then potentially our industries wouldn't exist in the way they exist now. So my role as an artist is to bring those visions and support those who are trying to bring those visions to life, not even through my money, but maybe through the work I share and the visions I share. Um, and we all have different parts to play. Um, yeah. So it's a vision of a world that you would like to see, yeah, that a consciousness of our current situation can help bring about or absolutely. move closer towards. And, and addressing where the disconnection lies, the root cause of our problems. 
for me, it's really, it's a perceptual problem. Yes, it's economic, it's social and political, but it's really strongly about our perception. We see the world and other people, especially of different races, cultures, ethnicities, genders, as non-human. We dehumanize, and that's what I'm trying to address. We need to rehumanize, reenliven the world. Thank you. And I know we've got another question at the front here, and I think there's... Who, can I just see who else has a question? Because I want to get in as many as I can. That was one of... Maybe. OK. We've got a definite and a maybe. Please go ahead. Hello. I'm Firstly, um, thank you all for sharing your um, stories. It's been amazing. Just to introduce myself. So my name is Sigmarini Kaliji. Um, I also lecture at UL, textile design, <laughs> in critical practice. And I run a collective called the Black Girl Knit Club. Um, many the work, our work is more diverse within it when craft. And our work is also in the exhibition as well. Um, and again, this idea of everyday activism and what that means, um, we kind of leave that through making and through knitting that process. It's kind of our practice of kind of everyday activism. Um, just, I guess, a few notes in terms of Christina. I saw the um, VNA African Fashion Exhibition, it was amazing. Um, my foundation students came to see it, and even they weren't as aware of African fashion or able to really engage within the work as well. Um, and Elisa, your comment around this idea of how we kind of interact with materials and then also having their own kind of life and have them also been an organism that we kind of interact with. Um, so I had two kind of questions. And especially with this idea of spirituality and what that means, and it just had me thinking, is there ever a time where there is no spiritual connection through the making process? You know, for those, for instance, that don't necessarily have faith, would you say there is always a spiritual connection within the making, within that process? And then my second question is, how do you feel that we can become more thoughtful practitioners and, and individuals? You know, I'm always trying to instill that in my students, and how can we... How can, that, how can we ensure that's made through our fashion choices and us be more intentional individuals? It's something that I'm always trying to kind of push with my students. So, and again, just thank you for sharing all your thoughts. Thank you so much. So a question for Christine specifically about spirituality in the making process. Yeah. And then a question for everyone about how can we become more thoughtful practitioners in our various forms yeah. of practice? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. So I, th I think that absolutely making itself is a spiritual practice. Whether you're following an organized religion or not, I think that the, the if you think about stitching, for example, that repetitive action, pulling the needle in and out of a piece of cloth, unpicking, restitching, that repetition, it is a form of meditation, I think. And it is a form of stilling one's mind. You know, why do we think that knitting circles, sewing circles existed in the first place? Yes, we're making things, but it's, but it's about social connection, but it's also this sense of stilling one's mind. So for me, the, you know, and as someone who, I still feel I am a practitioner, even though I've sort of moved into the museum world, but for me, I, I always felt that I, I thought through the physical act of sketching. So sketching was a kind of meditative practice. And I think by extension, I would say that making, when we think about self-fashioning, think about my locks or uh, braids or other, other hair types, brushing one's hair, grooming, these are all, I think, acts of meditation if they're taken on board 
mindfully, these kind of repetitive acts of self-making when it comes to self-fashioning in a sense, or making when it comes to a garment or a piece of cloth. So hopefully that answers the question. Can I pick up on that? Um, um, I've developed a term for myself as a guidance, which I call reverent making. Yeah, it's a form of, um, I try to put myself in a state of reverence and connection to the material and actually try to have a conversation with them and ask them what do they want to do. Not maybe what I want to do as a designer with my ego, my ideas, my understandings. But what does material want to do? How does the grain want to lie? What part of the pattern wants to be shown? And I'm not going to lie, I can't do it all the time, otherwise um, I'd probably not get all my work done. Um, but I think those little exercises, those attempts to rewire our brain, because we're wired in a particular way, we live in a very high-speed society, so to work mindfully as a practitioner is difficult, there is pressure, there is time, financial pressure, so to actually just take those moments and really cherish them. And I hope that with time, that can create a bigger rewiring in my head. Yeah. I'm gonna chime in before we pass over um, to Humira to say as well, I think one thing I really liked about today's panel is the way that we've widened concepts of religion, belief, and spirituality. And I also, as the convener, need to put into the room as well that, of course, there are many people for whom moral conviction isn't expressed through spirituality or religious belief. They may be atheist or agnostic or coming from very different sorts of perspectives. And I think as well, when we think about the, the words that have come up today about social justice, responsibility, alertness or mindfulness and connectivity and contribution, we can also see the ways in which making and practice and being in the world has a moral perspective and intention from many sort of people from different backgrounds as well. So I guess that for me, I'm also thinking about moral world making and, and contributions and the, into, the way in which creativity, whether it's dressing ourselves or making garments or curating or writing or teaching, Feeds, feeds into that from a variety of perspectives. And what I so value about this is the opportunity to see those connections across, across patterns of thought and ways of being in the world that might otherwise be presumed to be separated. Humira, we're handing over to you for the last word on this one. Um, yeah, I just think that practically, I think as a maker, what I have done is um, found that People want to learn how to create something. They may not be religious, uh, but somehow it seeps into them feeling comfortable. It's a good well-being feeling as well, interacting within a group, sharing, reflecting, speaking to each other, learning about each other, uh, understanding people's fashion and ideas and ideologies is a kind of space of kind of like developing yourself, which is really important. And also a culture of learning skills that they can walk away with and or they can introduce. I mean, I've done a few workshops where people have talked about all sorts of subjects 
and they've made new friends. And someone said, oh, do you know, this is how you can do this. And um, I like particularly red. You know, I, I got red thread within my, in my denim collection because my name means reddish. So it resonates with me. So this is why I identify and I love red. Um, and it's a growing. I think it's really good practice practically to get together, fashion your own clothes. Another thing about, I remember um, my collection, I think inspired following students was that I had a passion for something. It was a message I wanted to deliver, but not, not only a message, it was also a practical garment element that where I could wear something that's going to be practical for me, comfortable for me, I feel good in it, and it's going to have a longevity. And even if it doesn't have a longevity, I will know how to alter it, mend it, repair it, and give it new life. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, did you want to ask your question? Because we've got... Okay, we've got time for one very quick one. So, please introduce yourself and give us your thought. I'm Paula O'Connor, and I run a fashion network locally in the Forest. So. I know Vimira and Elisa well, and Francesca. Um, it was just really some positive thoughts, really, to share with you that I was reading an article this afternoon that was about well-being, um, and it said if you have a religious practice in your life, that you're more likely to live a longer, happier life. And I read on, and it said that was partly due to being part of the community and singing, <laughs> because that, the act of singing makes you happy. So just staying on that note of community, I run a second-hand sale actually in Hamira's studios. Um, and we see a lot of, uh, we invite the community to clear their wardrobes and come and sell. We set up a shop. And what we see is lots of people that wouldn't usually shop second-hand, but they come with friends because they want a second opinion. They want reassurance. Is that going to work? Because they're not used to shopping second-hand. So I suppose it was just saying, in response to, I understand that the expensive alternatives to organic cotton and that we all can't, but something, do you feel like something good could come out of this climate change because we're trying to work through it together? So, thank you very much for that. So, second hand is becoming more popular with parts of the population who didn't habitually do it. And how then is that changing attitudes to garments? And also, I think your point about shared activities, because shopping has often been something that people do together, whether it's for special occasions or teenagers hanging around in shops. So is there something that maybe changes in, in consumption practices might be here to stay as part of a different consciousness about how we acquire and wear our fashion? <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> Go with it, Hamira. Uh, I think it, I think it, we're all embracing something new. Uh, like I said, again, it's just trying something new, which is the case of wearing something secondhand. You know, it, it, I grew up in it because I was a student, couldn't afford it, but I liked vintage, I liked old, I respected the style, it, it suited me. Um, I think in the end, this kind of community feel and 
more volume is spoken about how we shouldn't be wasting, how we should be recycling, and people can't afford those beautiful luxury items. Even the luxury brands now are upcycling their garments. So, you know, you'll get a, I won't mention the brand, but you'll get a trench coat, which is now being taken apart and put back together to make it new again. So it's recycling instead of burning it in a pile. So um, there's other companies where you get sportswear. I mean, there's, a gener there's, uh, there's town halls everywhere you go in England that are full of second-hand pre-loved clothing that now is passing on. And I've met people who uh, have bought off me. I sold some garments that I've had for ages. Some I never wore, which shamefully is maybe because it, my style had changed. But it went to someone else who appreciated it, and they're going to enjoy it, and they're going to wear it. And I bought off some for someone else, and she goes, I'm so glad that my stuff is going to a happy home. It's, I'm going to keep it forever. I mean, I, I know it's weird, but I remember when I was, I bought a pair of boots. It was very expensive at the time, but every winter they'd come out. I had them for 20 years. They lasted that long. And I remember going into the shop and saying, finally, I cannot wear them because there's a massive hole at the bottom and I can't repair it. And um, I thought, I'll go into the shoe shop, and I said, I need a pair of new boots. And the woman looked down at my feet, and she goes, oh, my God, you poor woman. You've been living in those boots. <laughs> I said, well, I've had them for 20 years. <laughs> and she felt pity. She thought that I couldn't afford shoes, and I've come in desperately now to buy. But she didn't realize I loved them to death, wore them to death, to the point that I couldn't wear them anymore and I need a new pair of boots, so. Thank you. And I think when we, when we talk about um, consumption, we have to apply really careful audit to how things are working, because when people talk about the circular economy, you know, lots of luxury brands are now arranging resale of their items, which also means they make money more than once on the items. There might not be more new items, there might be fewer new items going in to the circuit, but there's also, there's a business case. So it's both about raising consumers' consciousness and making it viable for business who will see ways of doing it. Um, do you want to give a brief, brief response on this one and then we're gonna wind yes, up? Yes, I think we, we really need to change culture of perception, right? Secondhand clothes, like what, that, that case of woman commenting on your shoes and thinking that was not your personal choice, but a need, mm -hmm. that is what we can create within community. And I just gonna point out to Sunday's best exhibition over their display. And honestly, I saw those photos and I thought, oh my, I am so jealous, positively jealous, I call this. I don't have a place to go to where I can worship God and dress up in my best outfits. And I was like, I wish that was part of my life, but I'm not part of a, any religious following. I'm uh, you know, an animist, I'm finding my own way, um, in my own secular way. So these kind of spaces that you're talking about that can provide spaces, they're like new churches. You know, not calling them churches, but they're spaces of community gathering people of shared interests and understandings can come together and of course it's not just going to be about outfits it's going to be about lifestyle choices you know food is connected to fashion there are so many parallels in there 
Uh, then it's about lifestyle, it's about your health. Everything is so connected. So yes, I, I vouch for more creative churches. So, uh, St. Mary's Walthamstow, I'm picking it up. <laughs> so we all need fabulous places to go and frock up for. I think, we, did you want to come back on that? I just, just a very, very brief memory um, as we were talking about um, the place of secondhand clothes and to pick up on your point about things being resold and resold. At home, I have a beautiful photograph of my parents, my Jamaican parents, and it's their engagement photograph. And mum is seated on a, a throne, gilt chair. She's wearing a 1950s floral print dress. And I always remember the story that it was her favorite dress. She was photographed in it. After that photograph, she sent it back to Jamaica to her best friend, Birdie. And apparently Birdie wore this amazing dress and was the talk of the town. And I'm sort of sharing it because it's a picture of community. It's a picture of exchanging and swapping clothes. And it's an alternative way of this idea of the circular economy and an alternative way of recycling, swapping and exchanging. And also because of the precious personal connections of the, the special dress. Absolutely. I know that we have more to say, but we are running late and um, I'm going to have to bring us now to a close. Um, I want to thank my excellent partners, Amina Hashmi and Quarantema, sorry, Karantama Animadu at St. Mary's Waldemstow and everyone else in the excellent team here at the church who's contributed to the smooth running of the event. And I thank my terrific colleagues at LCF Global and our LCF communications team for their contributions. If you're not already on the mailing list for Faith and Fashion and you'd like to be notified about upcoming events and podcasts, there are some sign-up sheets over there. So please, in your best handwriting, give me your name and email and I will be happy to add you to the list. Um, I hope everyone here will be able to stay and join us for a reception. It will be a chance to speak informally with each other and with our speakers. We thank you, our audience, very much for your attention and your contributions. Our hardworking speakers have certainly earned a break. So before we go, join me please one last time in thanking Christine Chachinska, Humira Dar, and Elisa Rubinich.